Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you and to be with you. Uh, I feel like we've already had a sermon just, just around here this morning, so uh, I don't know. That pastor of children and family formation has got some game. So do the kids. Um, biased on all fronts, I admit. But uh, you get two sermons this morning. So uh, we're continuing in our series on the Apostles' Creed today. And this is the ancient document that summarizes the central beliefs of the Christian church around the world. And as we're a number of weeks in, uh, um, and it's been a little while since Lance's intro sermons, and it's very likely that some of us in the room are here for the very first time, Uh, it seemed like a good moment to remember how we are seeking to understand the world belief. Because this creed says the words, I believe, a lot, right? And so believing, simply stated, is not the same as knowing. It's not the same as being completely certain. It doesn't mean turning a blind eye to reasonable, verified facts in order to remain religious. To say I believe, rather, is to say I'm believing into or I am actively trusting, or I am actively living in a relationship of commitment toward. I have this, uh, this beautiful book called Celtic Daily Prayer. And in the morning prayer section, I've always been gripped by the opening sentences, which begin with words from Psalm 27, verse 4, which goes this way. One thing I ask from the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. And then it goes on from there with a call and response that goes this way. Feel free to read aloud the responses if you'd like. So who is it that you seek? We seek the Lord our God. Do you seek him with all your heart? Amen. Lord, have mercy. Do you seek him with all your soul? Amen. Lord, have mercy. Oh, we're not working? No, no worries. Don't read along with the responses because you can't see them, but it's really easy. It's amen, Lord, have mercy. So just memorize. So here's the call again. Do you seek him with all your mind? Amen, Lord, have mercy. And this time it's amen, Christ, have mercy. So do you seek him with all your strength? Amen, Christ, have mercy. So you heard that a number of times. And what's happening in the responses? So the amen, as we know, is like saying yes. I do seek the Lord with all my heart and my soul and my mind and my strength. This is my intention. May it be so. That's the amen part. And then, Lord, have mercy. What's that about? Well, I kind of hear it as an acknowledgement that I will definitely mess this up. It's the confession that I need help in this. Yes, this is my intention to seek the Lord with heart, soul, mind, strength. And, Lord, have mercy. I'm going to mess up tomorrow or sooner. This is an extended, responsive prayer version of, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I don't know how solid you feel your level of trust in God is this morning. If I asked asked you to think about where you are on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being like just full of faith, and 1 being like mustard seed size, what would you say? If you have ever felt intimidated by the Apostles' Creed, I have good news. You're not alone. Belief requires divine assistance. We can't say the Creed on our own. We need God's help even to trust him. So let's confess our need for help as we seek to engage this line of the Creed together. Let's pray with, will you pray with me? 
God, we thank you uh, that we are free to seek you and free to be with you. Thank you for the gift of this space and time to engage in worship, to sing, and to declare together. This is my Father's world. Thank you for the good world that you have given us. We ask for eyes to see and ears to hear that which you want to draw our attention to in this day and this morning. Yeah, make us attentive to you by your spirit. In the name of Christ, amen. Okay, so now I think we're, we're live. Thanks, Charlotte. We're going to um, put up the creed here and invite you, if you'd like, to confess it along with me. And maybe if there's a section that feels especially hard to say, um, but you want to believe it, say it, and then quickly add the words, amen, Lord, have mercy, just under your breath. And you can just kind of throw that in there, or even in your mind, whatever you want. Um, I actually think it's not a terrible idea to do that. So I kind of jest, but I don't really. So I invite you, if you'd like, join me in this. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. So notice that first slide again, um, and note that the fact that whereas last week uh, Steph was preaching and her topic is, was an all-caps topic, and mine is just all lowercase. So I kind of just see that. It's not quite as big a deal. Um, just joking. In seriousness, the all caps are just there to highlight the Trinitarian opening of each section of the Apostles' Creed. So what we're looking at today is maker of heaven and earth, and it may as well be in all caps because it is kind of a big deal. On the other hand, to our ears, this part of the creed may not sound all that revolutionary or controversial. Maybe it's not even the toughest one to embrace. Maker of heaven and earth. Okay, whatever, give me something hard. When are we going to talk about hell? But if you dig into the history even a little, you quickly realize that this was a contentious statement of belief, and it still is. Has anyone here seen a film called Melancholia? Melancholia? A little bit of an obscure one. Greg, I'm not surprised that you've seen this movie. It's so good. Um, it's from a few years back, 2011. It's by Lars von Trier, who makes what one writer called the world's most offensive and outrageous movies. The film focuses on the last short period in the history of our planet. So another planet is spotted out in space and they realize that this is gonna collide with us, with the Earth. And so there's a moment near the end when the main character, Justine, says rather matter-of-factly, the Earth is evil. There's no need to grieve for it. It's kind of a shocking thought that someone might think life on Earth is evil. But in the ancient world, this was a pretty typical attitude. In the ancient world, broadly speaking, people fell into two camps in terms of their perspective of the world. Either nature is divine, it's something to be worshipped and feared and placated with sacrifice, or nature was inherently evil, monstrous, and corrupt. And it was against both of those views that Christians would come to the waters of baptism and say, I believe in God the Father Almighty maker 
of heaven and earth. So it changes things a bit when you understand the context out of which this baptismal confession and now the creed was birthed. It becomes a stunningly bold statement. To be baptized then into a faith like this was totally countercultural. To see the world as being infused with divine breath instead of inherently evil. To, to claim that everything that has been made was made by the good God we have come to know in Christ. We'll look closer at the beliefs and stories that were in competition with early Christianity in a little bit. But first, I, I want to make a few comments about how Scripture speaks about both creator and the created order, as well as how it doesn't speak about these things. So let's start with the phrase heaven and earth. Heaven and earth. Is this referring to a literal heaven that exists kind of somewhere out there and only planet earth? Did some other being create the rest of the solar system and all other galaxies? Well, no. Simply stated, heaven and earth is Bible language for everything that is. It's taken right from the first words of scripture in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And as you continue through Genesis 1 and 2, you recognize that they say almost nothing about the method of creation, the means by which the world came to exist. So, for example, these opening chapters of Scripture do not rule out the idea of physical organisms evolving over thousands or even millions of years. The vision of creation outlined in Genesis, which is the vision borne out by the whole of Scripture, is absolutely compatible with the evolutionary sense of the world is always becoming as constantly in process with an expanding universe. And because that's the case, we need to be very careful as we are interpreting and applying the Bible to life here and now, not to make the scripture do what it was never meant to do. So one scholar said it this way, trying to read the account of origins in the book of Genesis as a source for scientific knowledge is both bad science and a disastrous misunderstanding of Genesis as a literary and religious text. Whatever else Genesis might be, it is not a scientific tract, not even by ancient standards. Only those desperate to save the inerrancy of the biblical text and lacking any sense of how stories can be true without being accurate will engage in such a dubious misuse of intelligence. Tell us how you really feel, Luke Timothy Johnson. Genesis does convey truth about how our world came to be, but not according to the standards of the natural and biological sciences. It speaks truth through story. It tells us that heaven and earth, all that exists, came to exist from a God who is not part of the created world, but who causes it to be by God's power of knowing and loving, that is, by his word. It tells us that everything that has been so brought into being is good. And that humans particularly represent the creator among all other creatures because they bear God's likeness and image. That's how Genesis 1 and 2 communicate. For one more way of putting it, let's listen to J.I. Packer, who said this. The message of these two chapters is this. You've seen the sea, sky, the sun, moon, and stars. You've watched the birds and the fish. You've observed the landscape, the vegetation, the animals, the insects, all the big things and little things together. You have marveled at the wonderful complexity of human beings with all their powers and skills and the deep feelings of fascination, attraction, and affection that men and women arouse in each other. 
Fantastic, isn't it? Well, now, meet the one who is behind it all. As if to say, now that you've enjoyed these works of art, you must shake hands with the artist. Since you were thrilled by the music, we will introduce you to the composer. It was to show us the creator rather than the creation and to teach us knowledge of God rather than physical science that Genesis 1 and 2, along with such celebrations of creation as Psalm 104 and Job 38 to 41 were written. We're not God, and God is not us. Creator and creature are different. So this is basic to Scripture's view of, of God's providence and grace and really all true thought about God and humanity. That's why it's in the creed. So this creed, this phrase in the creed, anchors us, it helps us, it defines us and our basic beliefs in at least a few ways. To say it negatively, it prevents us from misunderstanding God, the world, and ourselves. But I'm a glass half-full kind of guy, so I opted to use positive language. So let me suggest that trusting this part of the creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, equips us with at least three things. A faithful view of God, a faithful view of the world, and a faithful view of ourselves. So let's start with a faithful view of God. As scripture reveals and the creed affirms God made humanity in God's image, but we often tend to think of God in our image. That This creator-creature dis distinction reminds us that God does not depend on us as we depend on God. God does not exist as a result of our will or for our pleasure. As created beings, we are limited. God is not. If you've got a chair Bible nearby, I invite you to turn to Isaiah 40. And this text is also in the handout for this morning, a paper thing that you received as you came in. So I'm going to read verses 21 to 31 from Isaiah 40. And as I do, I just invite us to a posture of reverent worship. This, this is our God who made us and made everything that is. Let's hear God's word together from Isaiah 40. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary, increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. This is the word of the Lord.
Thanks be to God. I've been reading this text a number of times over the past few days, and I got to admit, verse 23 keeps standing out as the one I want to pray fervently. He reduces the rulers of the world to nothing. I don't know about you. It's not hard for me to think of people in power on the world stage that I might like to see reduced. At the same time, I recognize that I also need to confess my tendency to think of myself too highly or proudly or to refuse to accept my limits. So it can be fun to imagine what superpower we'd like to have if we could choose one. It's teleportation for me, hands down. Um, but I wonder what, to what extent the whole superhero enterprise, and it is an enterprise, I was looking to go see a movie not too long ago, invited a buddy to come with me, and it was like superhero movie, superhero movie, superhero movie, Green Book. Let's do Green Book. Let's go see that one. Nothing against the whole genre, but I just wonder how much does the superhero enterprise feed a mentality that with the right connections, the right amount of money, the right technology, the right amount of effort, we could in fact become divine. And from there, it's just a stone's throw to the notion that we are ultimately capable of saving ourselves. Lord, have mercy. I may at times want to know everything. I may sometimes act like I do. Ask my wife about that one. But I never will. Nor will I ever be able to be present everywhere. I cannot do all I would like to do. I cannot continue unchanged through my lifetime but the maker of heaven and earth is not limited in these ways. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? God is beyond all we can grasp. And the creed anchors us in a faithful view of God in all these ways and more. It also gives us a faithful view of the world. And this leads us back to the second century, when Christian teachers were working to define their beliefs and commitments in opposition to popular rival teachings. The dominant mood was one of religious cynicism. So the educated class basically assumed, like Justine in Melancholia, that the physical world was evil and beyond redemption, couldn't be saved. And even if it could, there's no point in saving it anyway. So the thought was, well, we might as well try to escape the world of the flesh so we can experience true spiritual enlightenment. There was this charismatic teacher in the second century called Marcion. He claimed that the material universe was created by a wicked and incompetent God. He was especially disgusted by the human body. He called it flesh stuffed with dung. Marcion was also horrified by sex. He viewed procreation as a monstrous evil. If you were a follower of Marcion, you had to adapt your life to an austere renunciation of sex, marriage, and child rearing. Natural bonds were dissolved, only spiritual bonds were of any value. That's Marcionism in a nutshell. This was one challenger to early Christianity. Another was Gnosticism. Gnostics, or literally knowers, taught that the physical world was created by an inferior deity and that salvation could be achieved by escaping from the material world by means of esoteric wisdom. So Gnostic teaching was wide-ranging, but common to all streams was dualistic thought that divided the bad creator from the good redeemer and the bad world of flesh from the good human spirit. So the Christian baptismal confession and subsequently the creed 
developed in part as a response to these world-denying doctrines and the wider culture of despair that gave birth to them. So all that means that right from the get-go, Christians were known by their positive stance toward creation. Did you hear that correctly? Right from the beginning, Christians were known. Christians were known for their positive stance toward creation, which begs the question, what sort of stance toward creation are we known for today? Whether by the things we have done to the world or left undone. It's a big one, but I'm just going to leave you with that question for now. And we'll come back to it a little bit later. That these early followers of Christ saw in John's gospel as plain as day a retelling of the creation story. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. These early Christians emphatically declared through both life and witness that in knowing Christ, we've met this creative energy that lies at the source of the universe. So to say the creed is a statement of personal allegiance to the God revealed in Christ, but this is not just a spiritual faith. It is an absolute commitment to the created world. I believe in God, maker of heaven and earth. To confess the creed is to affirm that the world, this world, comes out of the goodness and the love of God. And then we come to the third part of the creed. Just to fast forward a little, we get to see where things are heading, that this world is being renewed. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, beginning to end. This creed is about creation. So salvation, then, is not an escape it's, a, it's God's loving restoration of a good earth. So a big part of our baptism then is pledging ourselves to the created world, actually taking a stand for it. There's a perspective floating around kind of out there, I don't know, maybe in here, that would say the creeds are intolerant and exclusive. Historically, that is just not the case. In fact, it was the reverse. It was the church that took a stand on behalf of creation and said no to any doctrine that makes creation or the body evil. So in that sense, the creed was a rejection of cosmic intolerance. The creed is the church taking a stand on the side of creation, on the side of the flesh and of the body. It's a resistance to anything that disparages God's good creation. I love what Mako Fujimura said. He said, our failure is not that we chose earth over heaven, it is that we fail to see the divine in the earth, already active and working, pouring forth grace and spilling glory into our lives. Artists, whether they are professed believers or not, tap into this grace and glory. There is a terrible beauty operating throughout creation. If Christ announced his post-resurrection reality into the darkness, even into hell, and as the Bible and Christian catechism suggests, then as theologian, Abraham Kuyper put it, there's not one inch of earth that Christ does not call mine. A faithful view of the world requires a conscious recognition that the world exists, that it is as stable and as terribly beautiful as it is because God willed it and God made it and God sustains it. And because this is God's world, as we sang earlier, we are not its owners, but its caretakers. We're not free to do whatever we want with and to it.
as creatures, we are answerable to the creator for how we handle its resources. To say it another way, since this is God's world, we must not depreciate it. What would it look like during this Lent season to take on a practice of enjoying the world with gratitude? Maybe start the day to list by listening to Louis Armstrong sing What a Wonderful World. Or simply get outside, look up, and say thank you. To pray Isaiah 40, verse 26. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. Or, if we're prone to numbing ourselves to issues like climate change or just ignoring them, how might we practice reminding ourselves how valuable our world is to God? How might we actively call to mind God's generosity in giving it to us? Perhaps putting these words by Anne Lamott in some prominent location in your home. When humans experience something as powerful as a forest or a rainbow, it is not crazy to assign its existence to a greater intelligence. So the creed offers us a faithful view of God, faithful view of our world, and it also roots us in something we desperately need to remember, namely a faithful view of ourselves. In our culture, it's not uncommon to hear people claim to be self-made or to talk about others that way. You've heard it, maybe even the past week, he's a self-made man, she's a self-made millionaire, self-made entrepreneurs. I, I just learned from the internet that Cosmo, hosts an annual weekend called the Self-Made Summit. So here's the description. Cosmopolitan has a packed weekend planned of celebrity talks, speed networking sessions, and interactive workshops all dedicated to empowering you to achieve your hashtag career goals. I, so I don't know if we'll ever get to the Self-Made Summit, but something we could do would be to read that timeless classic, The Life of William Tuttle, The Self-Made Man and Consistent Christian. This is a real book. It's available on Amazon, and I know you want to hear the description, so here you go. Tuttle, the father of William, was a blacksmith of industrious habits, and by his trade was enabled to purchase a house and lot. That's it. That's the entire story. It's a page turner, no doubt. I don't know if you can read the bottom, but The Life of William Tuttle, The Self-Made Man and Consistent Christian was published by Forgotten Books. Thank you, Internet. Um, Self-made. I, I am hard-pressed to think of a more audacious claim humanity could ever make before God. I know Cosmo isn't necessarily suggesting that we all created ourselves. I know that the phrase doesn't necessarily mean the same thing, but this creed keeps the opposite affirmation in front of us, that we bear zero responsibility for making or fashioning ourselves. I am not my own maker. Therefore, I cannot think of myself as my own master. It was Augustine who said, you have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. This is the healthy sense of creaturehood that we need and which this part of the creed points us toward. We often need a realignment with his perspective that we are not autonomous, limitless beings, 
but we are dependent on God for everything. But also contained in our confession of God as maker is an awareness that we are made in the image of God. And we are part of the creation that God called good. Very good, even. We and everyone and everything around us possess an intrinsic beauty, a wonderful goodness. All of us, even people who read Tuttle and Cosmo. But we quite often don't feel good or at all good. We don't perceive ourselves as being made in the image of God. We fixate on failure and inadequacy. We experience criticism and rejection. We feel inferior or worthless. The memory of our good creation is shrouded in a thick fog of insufficiency as we keep telling ourselves, I'm not enough. For the last little while, since August of last summer, actually, I've had this image by Scott Erickson on my wall. And the prayer that goes along with it is this. May I never consider my weaknesses and faults the larger or more authentic part of me. May I never consider my weaknesses and faults the larger or more authentic part of me. So what is the larger, more authentic part of me, of us? I'm helped in remembering a little bit of that by these words by Celtic historian and theologian John Philip Newell. What does it mean to be made in the image of God, he asks. What does it mean to say that the garden is our place of deepest identity? In part, it is to say that wisdom is deep within us deeper than the ignorance of what we have done or become. It is to say that the passion of God for what is just and right is deep within, deeper than any apathy or participation in wrong that has crippled us. To be made in the image of God is to say that creativity is at the core of our being, deeper, deeper than any barrenness that has dominated our lives and relationships. And above all else, it is to say that love and the desire to give ourselves away to one another in love is at the heart of who we are. Deeper than any fear or hatred that holds us hostage, deep within us is a longing for union, for our genesis is in the one from whom all things have come. Our home is the garden, and deep within us is the yearning to hear its song again. Hmm. I don't think I've come across a more compelling vision of what it means to be made in the image of God. How we need to be reminded every single day that Isaiah said it, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, and that you and I are included in that good creation. This is the faithful view of ourselves that we are invited to embrace and to live into. So some invitations. Um, <clears throat> I'm under no illusion that the implications of this statement from the creed are not absolutely massive. They're huge. I'm not overstating it when I say that I think we have the rest of our lives to live out the reality of this facet of our belief. But before even mentioning the important tasks of creation care, first, I think we ought to reflect sincerely and honestly about our place in creation. 
And to do this, maybe we need to heed the voices of those both in and outside our tradition who have something to teach us. Maybe we start with the Celtic Christians who understood this, what it meant to hold love of Christ and love of creation together. John Philip Newell, from whom I just quoted, is from a book called Christ of the Celts. I commend it to you. And as we do this, I think we'll see that the answer is not guilt-ridden devotion to a list of Christian eco-rules, but to honest, open-hearted listening to the Holy Spirit. Another voice that's worth listening to is the work of Arasha. If you don't know Arasha, they're an international Christian organization working toward responsible environmental stewardship. I just want to offer a few ideas offered by an Arasha team member, David Anderson, um, to make tangible our belief that a good God made the good world that we inhabit. So a few thoughts. Cultivate wonder and gratitude. We're a few days into Lent, but it's not too late to take up a practice of gratitude. Every morning, try making a list of three things, five things, ten things that you're grateful for. Or maybe it's particularly awe and wonder. What would it be like to make a list of three things that astonish you? Really value your food. Another thought. It's a gift of God and flows from his creation. Don't be a mindless consumer. Be a grateful receiver. If beef is super cheap, there's probably a reason. Mindless consumption is the mentality that simply throws things away. Grateful receptivity is about acknowledging before God that we throw away too much and it has impact. Get to know your place. I'm preaching all of these things to myself. Let me just be clear. Get to know your place. Work and take care of it. Learn about the trees and flowers and plants and animals. Our tech team has mugs. So check those out. It's a good place to start. There's one about the birds. That Nigel's got one on the birds. And um, what's yours again? Oh, yeah, variety of animals and their species. So make a visit over to the tech desk after. It's a good place to start. But get to know your place. Learn about the flowers and plants and animals. Do you know where your water comes from? Do you know where your energy comes from? Do you know where your waste goes? There is no away. It goes to a physical place and it affects other people and creatures. One last reminder and a story. By virtue in the ma- being made in the image of the maker, we too are called to be makers, right? The, the scriptural view of creation is not that it was a one-time act that happened long ago, but an ongoing reality that we get to participate in. This is the central meaning of the name of our church, that we get to be co-artisans, joining God in God's continuous, joyful, creative work of renewing all things. Earlier, I quoted uh, Makoto or Mako, Mako Fujimura. He's an artist, he's an author, founder of the international arts movement, and a few years back, he gave a college graduation address in which he made reference to a high school. It's called Beacon High School, a creative charter school in New York City. And the first place incoming freshmen go when they arrive is the art room. It's at the center of the school. And the first and only question posed to them is, what do you want to make today? What do you want to make today? The art teacher said it usually takes several months to answer that, several, that simple question. What do you want to make today? And Mako reflected, this is not an easy question to answer. 
if you're used to doing what you're expected to do in order to graduate or to pass a class. He said, we live in a pragmatic utilitarian world in which our bottom line questions usually deal with questions of usefulness or profitability. And often these decisions are made in a Darwinian competition of who can win out the battle to be the most powerful, to take what you can out of life. In the scarcity mindset of such a dehumanized system, we usually ask, what can I take from you today? What do I take from others, or how can I do as little as I can to get the maximum results? And we do not ask, what do you want to make today? For the spirit-filled follower of Christ, this is not just a question, it's a way of being. I want to conclude by sharing a few more of Mako's words, and I invite you to reflect imaginatively and prayerfully as you listen. Then we'll have a prayer and we'll come to the table. What if our churches asked the same question? What do you want to make today? What if every single person darkening the church door on Sunday morning were asked the same question? What do you want to make today? What if the church was ready to respond to the answers given with resources and a network of experts? What if? We serve a creator God, and this creator created us to also be creative. In the same way that God gave Adam the authority to name the animals in Genesis 2, God invites his children to co-create within God's parameters. We cannot create ex nihilo, or out of nothing, but we are all artists with a small a, and we are asked to work through our brokenness and fears. We are created for love, and love is creative. So what would happen if every single person who follows this creator asked the same question, what do I want to create? And further, what if we became an ambassador to the world to help ask, what do you want to create, and how can I help you? What if we answered this question filled with the creative Holy Spirit of God every moment that we are awake and helped others to do the same? Would we have a world more beautiful, compassionate, caring, and daring? Would we see our occupations differently? Would we see our universities differently? Would we see our motherhood, our fatherhood, our brotherhood, and sisterhood differently? I believe we would. Invite us to a moment of stillness, and then I'll conclude for, with a prayer, and we'll come to the table. not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary in his understanding. No one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary. Young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Living God, thank you that your creative energy continues to be poured out into us and a desire to flow through us. Thank you that even today, the morning after 
the daylight savings times where we lose an hour, uh, that we don't need to fear that you have, you have lost energy or that you weary, you're weary, but you meet us in your full strength, in your full presence this day. We thank you for making us in your image. Thank you for giving us the example of Christ who continued to offer his life, even gave it up so that we might have life and have it more abundantly. We ask for the creativity, the inspiration, the imagination of your Holy Spirit to consider what it is you are wanting us to make in our little worlds, in our larger uh, worlds, our larger spheres of influence. Thank you. You are the maker of heaven and earth. We actively choose to trust you in this day. Amen. So as we come to the table...